Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host and co-DM, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-DM, McGill. It is episode 93. We are recording on the 18th of January, 2022. Uh, McGill. Tom. What's, what's up? What's up? What's going on at this episode? I got I got an operation this episode. I got Operation Arsonry. But after all this crazy wartime shenanigans, uh it's a fairly relaxed one. It's kind of a classic MPOC operation that uh was pretty easy. Definitely got it done in a single session. Uh yeah. Yeah. Nice. I've I've been sort of in a, like a a war mode though lately. Describe like I've been describing the Draelic liberation of the Deathlands, which is very like you know World War Two inspired, I guess in in this. And then I I watched Band of Brothers recently. I started watching the Pacific after. I don't like it as much. It's not as uh, hmm. it's not as nuanced. Um, I think I mentioned, but I've never actually seen Band of Brothers. Yeah, yeah, you've only uh, you're only familiar with Dead Eyes, the hit new podcast from that poor guy who wasn't. That's on right, yeah. <laughs> but uh, he he seems to have made it for himself in comedy somewhat. So there you go. Um, God, I felt like I was gonna. Oh man, I was gonna tell you a random anecdote, and I thought I might as well tell it on the episode. You want to hear it? Yeah, of course. When I was in high school, I think this was uh, grade 12. Every, every year of high school, I think, for my art elective, I took music class because my high school did guitar as the music class or, or was one of the more open uh, music classes you could do. And I played guitar, so it was, it was an easy uh, elective to take. And so I did every year pretty half-assed. Um, and every year it was basically just like a pandemonium class where nonsense kids <laughs> went to do their nonsense. Um, we had like a very, a very soft spoken, long suffering teacher, Mr. Corkett shout out to him. Poor guy. I, I definitely, his name was Corkett. Yeah, I definitely, uh, uh did like, he tell you guys to put a cork in it? No, no. He was very like, all right, class, let's, uh, Settle down, everyone. Everyone be quiet. And, like, everyone's just, like, fucking... Man, these kids, they used to (laughs) prank this guy by fucking... Like, you could... As the guitar teacher, you could ask him... You could pretend that you were so dumb you didn't know the most basic thing in the class, which was tuning a guitar. And you could give your guitar to him and say, can you tune this for me? But what these kids would do is they tune the strings so tight that as soon as he struck them, they would like snap. And it was oh. very dangerous. And what he learned to do was just immediately untighten the strings as soon as he was handed a guitar and start from like loose to avoid those incidents. Because it was also fucking destructive to the the school property of the guitars and whatnot. Um yeah, and, and his class was kind of just like a Lord of the Flies nonsense <laughs> situation. And uh, anyways, in grade 12, uh, 
I was in this class. I, there was this guy in my class who I think is like an actual like musician now. Uh, his name his name was Matt Powell. Um, might be an Ottawa musician. Not sure, but uh, he was in my class pretty much every year I think, and he was um. He had kind of a class clown vibe to him uh class comedian more i would say uh and one of his <laughs> around the time of our final exam in grade 12 as i remember it uh revenge of the sith had got just come out the star wars episode three and so uh, Star Wars was sort of like back in the zeitgeist for that period of time. Um, I am so Matt curious Powell, to know where this is going. <laughs> Matt Powell had begun, I think a lot of people in the class had begun doing Yoda voices just as like a joke, as just like a, a basic comedic, uh, you know, bit in the class. Um but we were doing the final exam for like the last grade of high school and they kept talking in Yoda voices, which like you're not supposed to talk at all in the exam, but they were just like very deliberately like being like, Rrr! and it got to the point where Mr. Corkett was like the next person who does a Yoda voice gets thrown out of the class and fails the exam. And like within seconds, Matt Powell said, hard this test is <laughs> and uh he was taken out in the hall and i remember as i did my exam like watching him like begging the teacher to forgive him for that oh ridiculous God. outburst just like please 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 because it's the final exam in the final year uh and uh yeah hard this test is <laughs> i don't know what jogged my mind or anything i just thought of it and i was like that's a classic hard this test is hard this test is wow what grade did you say that was that was grade 12 that was like the last grade that's why it, he like got so repentant when he said now you're gonna fail the exam automatically because you said hard this test is because <laughs> he's like no i can't fail this exam it's funny because uh, I remember in it would have been grade seven or eight, uh, the school that I went to, which was Hadley Junior High, they did this thing where you got these electives and they were usually arts electives, but they also did uh, like home ec was one of them. Shop was one of them. uh trying to remember i think moral and religious education was another one and they weren't like i went to a catholic school so that uh, was religion was always a, a mandatory got it but uh these weren't electives so much everybody took them but you got one per trimester i guess you got three per year uh and i believe in grade seven it was all the arts ones it was visual art drama class and music and then in grade eight, I think it was home ec, uh, it was MRE, is moral religious education. And uh, what was the other one I said? Shop. Um, anyway, in junior high, uh, the music class was exactly as you described. Just like utter pandemonium, pure chaos. You couldn't calm down. 
any of the kids. They were just going crazy. And uh, I mean, I was actually a very quiet child at that point, but I definitely remember the moment where like one of the teachers just like snapped and was like, I'm not coming back. I can't remember the guy's name. It was a male teacher and someone threw a giant spitball at the chalkboard next to him and it splattered everywhere. And he turned around and went, that's a big mistake. And then he left and I guess he just chose to be reassigned or maybe he quit. But then we got another teacher and she was this really cool lady, uh, younger, so probably like in her early 30s and wore like Doc Martens. And she was actually really cool. And she taught us all how to play like Nirvana and stuff that people are actually interested. It was basically, <laughs> I guess I realized as I'm saying this, it was basically like that movie Dangerous Minds. <laughs> but in grade seven. But uh, all that to say, I totally relate to the the music class that is completely uncontrollable. That's a that was an act of uh, uh, academic terrorism, is what you're describing. I guess <laughs> See, they yeah. they intimidated that guy out of his career, and then they got a new teacher that they like better. That's wild. I mean, they didn't so much intimidate him; they just misbehaved until he got sick of it. Like they didn't throw the big spitball at him they just threw a big spitball at the chalkboard next to him and he was like screw this and left so i mean well, also not great but i don't think it was intimidation i think it was pure aggravation uh i to my knowledge uh mr corkett never threw in the towel he was uh, uh, damn he was good on impervious. you go mr corkett if you're still out there if you're listening yeah um, right. Any hard this test is. Um, I've got Operation Arsonry, and like I said, it is uh, a relatively relaxed affair for all this wartime stuff I got going on. Right. I was gonna say also, been playing Steel Panthers. Um. Oh yeah, and I've been trying to find a war game for my dad. So, all that. Right on, man. Over in the verse, uh, we're going to prison. The players are going That's to right. prison. They got captured. They, Man, I wonder if uh, if Haunch managed to weasel his way out of, uh, out of it. Well, if he did manage to weasel his way out, then he's going to be sitting out the next few sessions because they're all going to the slammer, the space slammer. And uh, he's got a weird sort of detached subplot where he's like trying to get his friends out using, using bureaucracy or something. Well, you'll see very early on if you want to to do this <laughs> subplot with Hodge, you'll see there is actually an opportunity quite early that you can get in on that might help him slip away. Um, yeah, but uh, the you know, you can only break the law so many times and I really wanted to switch things up a bit and move away from the the sort of gig economy uh, adventures I'd been running and put the players in a whole different situation, turn their world upside down, and so they're going off to prison. And this is a pretty interesting adventure because uh, it goes, of course, multiple sessions there and there for a while. And... Uh, this one, the session I'll describe on this episode is, uh, it's, it's almost like it's on rails. It's kind of on rails. They don't have a lot of agency until late in the session. Uh, they're still allowed to, of course, you know, 
play their characters, but uh, when you're being processed to be put into a penitentiary, uh, you don't have a lot of choices. You don't have a lot of options. So this one leans a lot more into the character role-playing and also a lot more... It was a lot more role-playing on my part to really set the mood and introduce some of the key players uh, that are going to be sort of dealing with the party as they stay in this giant space penal colony. No, what this reminds me of is uh, one of my favorite games, Grand Theft Auto 2. Grand Theft Auto 2, pretty much the whole game, you're doing that uh, gig economy thing that you described. Oh, this is the, the OG one, one mission, right? The top-down uh the top down game the second of the top down ones yeah. and in my opinion like one of the best that's ones a good one that's did. the one but that anyways. has the like the gang mechanics right where they're different gang territories yes and the gangs are like crazy wacky like one of them is called the loonies and they're in they, they are literally inmates who took over the asylum um there is uh, a group of like like super scientists and they all have like all their dudes have rocket launchers and they have like super speed cars. Um, anyways, but I was just going to say that you do like all your missions in that game. You just roam around the city, but then there are um, telephone booths at specific places that are colored according to which gang they are uh, associated with i think and then you know you pick up the the phone you do a job you get a job you go and do it that raises your rep with one gang lowers your rep with another gang but you can balance it back by uh killing other members of the gang or getting doing more missions anyways but the thing I wanted to highlight is that um, in like the third act of the game, I think, when you're the, in the industrial district, there is a mission where one of the gangs specifically sends you into a prison to be processed. And it's this it's like a very um, interesting sort of twist on the like shift in, in the gameplay because you go from this free roaming like gun toting car stealing maniac to just like an unarmed guy in this big prison yard and you have to like find someone and start a fight with them and everything and uh yeah just uh remind me of that very similar ideas and uh when i get into it uh because this was a very different kind of adventure than than really any of the ones i've described in previous campaigns um I did a lot of research for this, and I'll talk a lot about sort of the the tropes and sources of inspiration that I was dealing with. Oh boy, are we going to talk about Oz? I mean, we're going to touch on Oz, but that's not the one of the primary sources. I did watch quite a bit of Oz and Prison Break while I was prepping these sessions. This uh, man, this gets me on a whole other tangent uh recent tangent do you want do you want to hear it let's do it why not all right so um at some point for some reason my youtube started recommending me like all sorts of clips from oz and so i feel like from that bizarre period i have seen like almost every critical scene from oz just because youtube kept like being like 
hey, you should watch this scene from Oz. Hey, you should watch this scene from <laughs> Oz. And so I did the sort of thing where I watched the YouTube clips and I read the Wikipedia synopses of the episodes to sort of understand what was happening. Um, that show hmm. is very like, man, it's such a weird example of like proto like HBO, like, like the earliest HBO programming. Um, it's like it has all the like production value of prestige HBO, but then the writing <laughs> is so like it's like they didn't expect anybody to offer any criticism. It's like it is the most Just, like, yeah, man, like like, man. OK, if you watch that show, first of all, it's like they're constantly just going into like maintenance rooms and back rooms and like murdering each other or or worse and it's like why doesn't anybody like lock up these rooms also like nothing about the plot makes sense why do they keep putting people who specifically know each other in this maximum security ward why is this guy who has no criminal history who killed someone in a drunk driving accident once put in like the most <laughs> violent maximum security prison ward why is the experimental ward yep. with the glass pods where you can see everything how is uh jk simmons able to like brand the guy in his bed in the middle of the night with nobody noticing also there's an episode where they introduce a drug that causes you to age the amount of time you would have spent in prison and they're suggesting this as an alternative to prison and some of the characters actually take it and end up turning into like old makeup versions of themselves and then it's just like never brought up again <laughs> that show man i have not seen all of it uh i've seen the first season but yeah uh, like I said, it's not one of the primary sources of inspiration for this one. It's, it's so funny. It's, it's totally, it's insane because it's like, if you watch those clips and read the YouTube comments now, it's all like people who clearly like were fully into the show when they watched it, but now they watch it now and they're like, oh my God, how did I not see all these insane flaws? Yeah, you know, I th and I think the answer to that is, like you said, it was the proto-HBO show. So back then, we didn't have a lot of TV that was like that. that we didn't like have movies. a lot of, I don't think we had a lot of, like, hardcore, like, TV criticism at the time. Like, there, they didn't have to worry about some, like, you know, yeah. vulture critic being like, this whole season made absolutely no sense. <laughs> I think that's a good point, actually. It's the critics that keep them in check now. I mean, to some extent. Didn't work for Taboo. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I feel we should jump into mine first, because I think I'm up first. Um, and uh, my episode, like, my session will probably not take that long. Go for it. So, Operation Arsonry. We are continuing with the Draelic invasion or liberation of the night uh the nightside eclipse controlled deathlands in Drail. Uh they've basically taken the northern half of the kingdom of Tristadia now. So they they landed 
in the uh, northern coast of the Deathlands took uh, Port Ravendusk and have been pushing south. They've uh, taken out some sort of uh, uh, like minor strongholds uh, after the city of Port Ravendusk, like the monastery that I mentioned previously. And uh, eventually, the big push is eventually supposed to take us to the southern coast of the Deathlands, where the much larger capital city of Decima is located. Um, but before we get there, there's still some objectives that, uh, you know, they specifically uh, are suited to secret agents like the MPOC. So... Uh, Cue the Mission Impossible theme. Yeah, so in this case, we got... Although this is more of a, you know, one of those classic uh, World War II spy kind of movies or, or shows. Um, you know, it's funny. The one that uh, I think of just because I guess I, I... I don't know. There's not a lot coming to mind, but I remember I watched the first season of that uh, Canadian show, Camp X. Do you know that one? No, that's about that? um. So there was this. I think it was in Ontario. This Camp X was like a training facility for uh young spies who were then gonna be sent over into Europe to prepare for the D-Day landings. Um, so to like uh link up and arm uh resistance fighters to gather intel, all that sort of thing, and uh, it makes for a very uh you know, easy to sell TV show because it's all like young people. So you can cast some like pretty looking young people to be all these spies. But the thing is that they were like, you know, they were students. They were people who could be bilingual. Like you could send them into France and they'd speak French and English and or they'd have uh, be trilingual and even be able to speak German, what have you. Um, but yeah, then is they the show yeah yeah they ran for multiple seasons i liked the first season um but the second season it started to i don't know it it i i don't know huh, i didn't like it as much okay. but but yeah it's like a big time like uh like cbc kind of production it's like a very it's very can i hadn't heard about this at all but it sounds it sounds real cool uh, shame that only the first season is good by your estimation but that's actually uh it's a neat setup well, it's funny because I, I also I remember when I was enjoying the first season, I pitched it to our friend Grant, who watched it and was not impressed at all. <laughs> but oh, wow. I don't know. I, I <laughs> like I wonder if I was just like not judging it very harshly. I was just like, oh, this is kind of neat. Um, yeah, maybe this was your it was odds. very uh, it was very CanCon. Do you mean like? My Oz as in it was bad, but I thought it was good. My yeah. Oz is from Dusk Till Dawn, the TV show. That <laughs> is 100% the thing that I was, I was doing a lot of drugs at the time, and I was convinced that that show was legitimately amazing. Um, until about like the end of the first season, uh, the, the spell wore off and I was like, what the fuck is this? Um, but I was like, I, I gave that show way more benefit of the doubt than I ever should have. Did that, did that air on Spike TV? Uh, I no, it, it aired on, uh, 
Robert Rodriguez, like the channel that he owns for like Latino television, oh, uh, El Rey. Yeah, yeah. What was it? I think called? it was called El Rey. El Rey that's and right. it's funny because then it was like the first production on El Rey, I think. And then in the show, they keep talking about this mythical place called El Rey. And, um, yeah, but but then uh, I saw it because it was on Netflix. They they like he he made it a deal with Netflix where like it was coming out on Netflix at the same time, and uh, yeah, I was really into it. I mean, I was really it was when I was playing that game Vampire with uh, set in Las Vegas and everything. Like you know, uh, but also I was I was going through some stuff at the time, and maybe I wasn't uh, too clear too clear headed. But, you know, maybe Camp X was also located around that time of my life. So who knows? I guess maybe I'll watch it. I mean, I, I think you can definitely just like uh, pull it up on either Netflix or like CBC Gem or something and like definitely check it out. I didn't. Uh, there was definitely uh, a couple episodes, at least in the first season that I was like, eh, stayed with me, stayed with me um and yeah it's it's like world war ii era spy stuff it's not like it's not in the battlefield but it's like behind the scenes like resistance and oss and all that stuff it's like it is like your mission should you choose to accept it you know uh you know uh dossiers and everything but um you know uh it's actually i think I've well, I've talked about it previously how when uh, I had the conceit of the the runestone um, like teleportation codes that they would use to uh, infiltrate and exfiltrate, I had this idea of it being kind of inspired by like the cryptography of that era and like the spy maneuvers, and that was kind of inspired by Camp X, I think. Um, so anyways, like, you know, in t telling these stories, I'm very much like thrown back to a time when I was like playing Call of Duty World at War and, and listening to the Medal of Honor soundtrack and everything else. Um, but yeah, this one is, is it falls more along those like secret agent lines, those like OSS uh, intelligence operations and less of a, you know, elite bunker busters in the in the field kind of commandos thing um so this one was set it's it's set around this nightside eclipse encampment uh that's sort of built around a watchtower which um this one was uh based on the scarlet moon hall uh chapter of the or or part of the princes of the apocalypse campaign which is the um the fire cult uh fort but also i wanted to touch on something which is i think i had previously said that in the the raid on port raven dusk was inspired by like the between portions of the campaign and i think looking back i'm not sure if that was entirely correct i think that at least I think maybe like the initial invasion was that, but when they were in the streets of Port Raven Dusk and securing it, and when they took the garrison, 
um, looking back through the Princes of the Apocalypse book, I realized that uh, that part was based on the Feathergale Spire and the Sighing Valley parts, which are like sort of both around based around the air cult but the Feathergale spire is like their actual hideout and that is what served as like the garrison that the uh giant vultures were attacking from but then the city itself i used the encounters from the sighing valley which is just like the area local to the Feathergale spire and similar to that like these things are called like haunted forts or something in the like layout of the campaign. But uh, the Scarlet Moon Hall is like just like one sort of dilapidated tower with like an encampment built around it. It's not like a fortress the way that Raven Dust Keep is or anything like that or, or was. So um, in this encampment, what the empok doesn't know this as, as far as i know i think i sent them in just to like investigate this but they didn't really have the intel going in is that there's been this encampment uh sprung up around this watchtower because the kingdom of catatonia the like main kingdom in the deathlands that the draelic army is currently invading uh they have basically sent a diplomatic mission out into this area where they've uh, erected this sort of encampment. And the hope is to uh, forge an alliance with their neighbors in the forest of Agaloc to the southwest. There's this long stretch of forest along the southern coast of the Deathlands that's very, like, I think on the map now, it's even, like, there's nothing inside it marked. It's kind of, like, uncharted. It's just a big, spooky, kind of wintry, uh, haunted forest kind of thing. Um, but it's very mysterious. And the Empok, whereas the Empok had gained uh, intel on Catatonia over the course of this invaration, they now know who is in charge, King Blackhelm. Um, there are these neighboring areas, like they also have pretty much charted out the Acrid Plains, which are a pretty desolate stretch of the Deathlands that is sort of uh, above Agaloc and to the west of Catatonia. So the Acrid Plains are basically known, although there's they're like a big sort of Mordor-like desolate stretch of wasteland. Catatonia at this point, is effectively known up to the borders of the huge city on the southern coast of Decima. Um, it's known that to the east, on like sort of the far reaches of the Deathlands, there's another kingdom called Tristania, but not much is known about that. And then, um, and then there's the there's Agaloc, which again is kind of mysterious. This is another place that they don't really have intel on. Um, so the party is sent to this encampment to check out what Catatonia is up to, what, why they've got this sort of, uh, outlier encampment formed in the West, uh, sort of apart from where they would be normally defending around this watchtower. And the real reason is that there is like, there's a diplomatic mission being held there where hopefully 
people are going to be drawn to that place from Agalok. They'll make a deal, and then maybe the forces of Agalok or Agalok will somehow come to the aid of Catatonia because they're in this embattled state during the invasion. Um, but the encampment, because it is basically, it's by necessity open to outsiders because it has to be open to these, uh, del like, uh, delegates from Agalok, um, and it's not exactly known who those are, who, who those are going to be. Uh, Al's Aces, the party, they're able to enter pretty easily because the camp is not that tightly guarded. Chessie has disguised self, and so they can sort of approach undercover. I was gonna say, like, time to bust out the tickle. Yeah, front, they right? they gotta they sort of approach undercover, uh, like under the guise of like we're mercenaries who are also here to join the the Catatonian cause. Um and uh. The thing is that the players, they come to this encampment, but they don't like there's all these different sort of clusters of tents, but they don't really know who is where or what is where. Um, but they were very lucky because I think the first uh, cluster that they went to ended up being the delegation from Agalok. Uh, they get to this small part of the encampment and there's this group of humans who are really like not typical nightside eclipse. They're almost like they're like hippie forest folk. They're like they they and they're <laughs> they're from Agalok, which like there's at least enough to reason like, oh, they're from Agalok, so like they come from like a dense forest area. Like they are forest folk. Um, but for nightside eclipse, uh, or like for people in the Deathlands, they did not have the same sort of like grimness or hostility uh that's normally associated with the night with the deathlands um instead you've got sort of like these four like forest druid types um who are there with a couple of elk which are their sort of like uh, beasts of burden or, or or mounts and whatnot um but the party approaches them and just sort of says like oh we're just local mercenaries looking to see if there's any work in this war um, the, uh, these people from Agalok, they don't know anything about, you know, the Empok or, or what have you. They, they haven't been in the war so far. Um, so they don't know to identify the, this party. And so the party talks to them and basically this gets them all the intel they need for like what, what's going on here, what they can do. Um, they figure out that, these guys are the delegation from Agalok. They find out that they've traveled from Agalok and they're here to speak with this diplomat from Catatonia who is currently being housed in the watchtower that the encampment has sort of been built around. Um, the guy in the watchtower is a pyromaniac by the name of... Or, uh, not pyromaniac. Pyromancer. A pyromancer by the name of uh, Ray... Speaking of El Ray, speaking of Ray, this guy's name was Ray. Anyway, uh, Ray is the diplomat sent from Catatonia who's also a pyromancer. He's staying in the tower. Uh, the delegation is just camped out here, but they're here to uh, go see that guy. And uh, the agents of the Empok, Alzaces, they're like, okay, 
uh, I guess we this is what we got to do here is prevent this diplomatic mission. So the first thing they do is they assassinate the delegation. Uh, they spare the elk, but these four guys who just filled them in on everything, they just like wipe them out. They loot their tent, take anything that could like there's scrolls and stuff. They basically like erase all presence of their having come here except for the elk um they then from there they investigated a couple of other groups around the encampment uh they checked out one area where there was like a a captive bear like stake to the ground um where they found that uh there was a couple of nightside eclipse priests who were keeping the bear um but in that case, it was just Chessie that approached that group. And these two knights at Eclipse come, priests come out and Chessie was in disguise. And she was able to just be like, hey, who are you? Oh, OK. Sorry to bother Hello, you. Hello, fellow kids. Yeah. Like it, it was very just like, hey, who are you? Well, we're knights at Eclipse priests. What do you want? Oh, I'm just mercenaries. Who should I talk to? Not us. Get out of here. All right. Sorry to bother you. Like, <laughs> you know, Um then the next one, though, they went to this other uh, cluster of tents that was sort of on the outskirts. Unfortunately, this cluster of tents actually was mercenaries joined the who had come to join the uh, force of the Nightside Eclipse. Um, local bugbears who had a couple of wargs, and when the players trespassed on their encampment, they just attacked. They didn't ask any questions. They just came out in ambush, classic bugbear style. So Those bugbears. after that encounter, should have made him some stew. Yeah. After that encounter, um, like they take out all the bugbears and the wargs. It's like a brief combat encounter. Uh, possibly like the only real tricky one of the of the session. Um, but from there, at that point, they'd had like these two run ins after the delegation that had been like the priest one went okay but the bugbear one was just a straight up fight and they were like well we know that the diplomat who's like the real target here is up in the in the watchtower so let's just skip the rest of this camp like it doesn't really matter who else has come to support the catatonian cause or whatever we we've taken out the Agal the agaloc delegation we should take out ray the diplomat and then mission accomplished so basically they skipped the rest of the encampment from here uh and decided to hit the watchtower which um they they used their classic approach which was flight uh rather than ascending to the top of the watchtower from the bottom they uh jumped to the top managed to infiltrate into the sort of attic of the watchtower uh, which had a bunch of giant bats lurking inside, which they dispatched fairly quickly. And then they descend into the chambers below, which is where the Catatonian diplomat is stationed. So Ray, this diplomat, this pyromancer, he's in this chamber. He's got a small group of bats that he's got sort of like uh, guarding him. The party at this point is basically like ultra effective assassination force. They just like drop into the chamber. As far as I could tell from my notes, Ray only got a single spell off before he was taken out. And I'm I'm thinking back, 
Um, it's very possible that like after initially going in and hitting the bats and him, uh, Arakendor just did a destructive wave that like cleared out the whole chamber. Like basically like Walter White, like throwing down the fulminated mercury and breaking bad. Um, but the thing is, this highlights another reason why destructive wave is so good. You get to choose which creatures are affected. So they could all be like stuck in that close quarters in the chamber there. And he could still do a massive wave that just takes out everything but them. And then it's just a quick in and out operation. They just take flight out the out the uh, attic of the <laughs> watchtower, fly away, fly in and uh, blow it up. Both the representatives away. of the diplomatic mission have been neutralized. Uh, Catatonians is going to be waiting a long time to hear if Agalok's ever going to send that aid they need so desperately against the Draelic forces. And, uh, that was Operation Arsonry. A real, uh, simple... Hell yeah. ...classic, uh, behind enemy lines operation. Drop in, cause shit, fly away. So, that was my operation arsonry for this episode but there have been some technical difficulties and there's been a little bit of a break uh between me saying that mcgill what did you think of that oh man we we could have done this we could have done this invisibly yeah, people but would never the know being that then then we're not using it you know uh that's that was my thinking anyway is uh besides i want to i want to learn our cover tom re refresh refresh your memory because i want to ask you what you thought about all that meeting with the stopping the diplomatic mission from agalock and catatonia meeting with the delegates from agalock the encampment what do you think of all that well i do like a good bit of espionage and as you had pointed out it's a nice change of pace from uh the past the prior few sessions that were all sort of like war right like they're real battle uh battle adventures so I like that yeah. you're you're back to infiltration and and subterfuge and espionage. Um, I'm a big fan of sort of adventures or even campaigns that have a scene like in the Warriors where it's like a bunch of different sort of mercenaries and gangs all getting together to meet. Um, and I was kind of reminded of that with like this rogues gallery of characters all at this in, in, encampment for, uh, yeah, for that always makes me think of, uh, classic Batman plot line is, uh, the carnival of killers when it's just like, we need the Batman dead. Yeah. Or like a, a sinister that six kind of situation. Every villain. Yeah, we're going to put a price on the main guy's head that brings in every villain from around and we're all going to have a big old meeting. Yeah, I like that stuff. And then you get to sneak into the meeting and see all the crazy assassins you're going to have to fight. But then over the next several missions, you fight the assassins. And it's always fun if you put your players in a situation like that where they've infiltrated this meeting and there are all these villains who have gathered and they're talking about like, OK, you know, we've come together to take down a common threat and then the player slowly realizes that they are the common threat that all these villains are talking about. And suddenly there's that extra level of tension that can happen where it's like, oh, God, I'm surrounded by people who want to kill me. 
I mean, I in my experience, you get to the you get to the meeting because you know that they're having the meeting so that they can put a price on your head and you want to scope out the competition. But uh, true. But in the cases, yeah, that's that's just how I've had. How yeah, I was going to say in the case of something like the MPOC, though, I could easily see the MPOC being like, there's a meeting going on. We need you agents there to find out what it's about. And then they get in deep and realize it's the autumn leaves talking about their plan exactly. to kill the MPOC. <laughs> Whoops. Uh-oh. So, that was Operation Arsonry on my end of things. Meanwhile, we got the verse. Got the verse and we're going to prison. And uh Oh boy. Yeah, it's a I don't think I'm cut out for this. <laughs> Haunch definitely is not cut out for this. Um so before before they even go to prison, uh, you know, I mentioned off the top that this was I was shaking things up, shaking up the format a bit, going for a different setting and different kinds of adventures. Can I take a guess at a possible inspiration that you used for this? Uh, yeah, by all means, like f- I was, fire away. I was thinking about this. For, I was thinking about this recently, and you were actually the one who introduced me to this. You sat me down and showed me it, and I've been thinking lately that I should show it to some other people, but. Uh, the Ballad of Ricky. Oh, man. Ricky O, the story of Ricky. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan, and I did take a lot of inspiration from it. That that also has a sort of Carnival of Killers element where it's just like a series of guys sent to kill Ricky in prison. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, well, so I mean, it's sort of like the... It is based on a, a manga, so it's sort of like the manga anime version of a lot of those typical prison tropes. Because, you know, in prison movies and shows and stuff, like a big part of the new guy being thrown in prison is uh, the gangs. There are gangs all around you, and you have to decide if you want to affiliate yourself with one of the gangs for protection. But, you know, do the gangs have an initiation or something? And then in Rikio. The idea is that the prison is just ruled over by four gang leaders, and uh, they all have beef with Ricky. They they all want to take him out for different reasons. Um, I definitely did draw some inspiration from Ricky O, which is a great movie. Big fan. Um, care to hazard a guess at other things that I watch? Because when I was prepping for these these prison sessions, these adventures that take place in space jail, uh, I watched, I just like binged a whole bunch of prison media, prison TV shows and movies to get myself in the right mindset and like identify sort of the tropes and the things that these kinds of stories do. Because there's, there's always, you always deal with the same things. Like I said, the gangs, you know, gangs are always a big part of these stories. Um, so I know that you've mentioned, uh, Prison Break and Oz already. Yep. Um, I assume that Shawshank Redemption yeah. is in yeah, there. Yeah, that's in there too. Uh, it's sort of, uh, Cool Hand Luke. Less so Cool Hand Luke, but I did, part of, the part of Cool Hand Luke that I drew inspiration from was Work Gangs. The, the player's... What we have here is a failure to communicate. Yeah. I sh- in hindsight, I totally should have had, like, like Gale has to eat 50 hard-boiled eggs or something. That would have been fun. 
there was a great bit on my brother, my brother and me recently they, where they were talking about maybe it was just the actor could eat 50 hard boiled eggs and was so obsessed with proving it to everyone like, that he <laughs> insisted that they do that scene. He's like, I know a way that I could show I was really tough in prison. And they're like, we're not doing the egg scene. <laughs> For the last time, we're not doing the eggs. It Honestly, it um, makes me think of uh, on the original TV series of Jackass, they had some of the guys try to eat 50 hard-boiled eggs to see if they could do it. And, of course, it ended in disaster. Uh, it's a lot of eggs. <laughs> it's a lot of, icky. A lot of eggs. Uh, and then the Jackass guys did it again with... For Christmas with eggnog, so you could drink 50 glasses of eggnog. Ugh, shouldn't have all that egg, man. Shouldn't have all that... You, you know, this is... It goes right back to Goblin Law. Shouldn't eat anything bigger than your head. That All those eggs, you know, in one sitting, that's a bag of eggs bigger than your head. I didn't right realize there. it was a cumulative rule like that. You can argue it one way or another, <laughs> but I'll tell you, the principle... The principle stands, okay? If, if you see one goblin, those eggs could have fed 50 goblins, not one goblin who got sick. <laughs> um, That's goblin law in a nutshell. A goblin getting sick while other goblins go hungry. Uh, I was also going to say, because this is something that I, f I wonder, I, I'm not sure if you would have used this but I really would have liked you to is super jail. You know, I hadn't seen super jail at the time. This is what I wondered. And it's man, it's funny because super jail has elements that I think are so that I love so much. I don't know if you've ever seen, have you seen like all of super jail? Or? It's been a few years, but yes, uh, it it it's funny, you know, because you and I, I think, have mentioned this before. But uh, when I was living in Ottawa, we would always go to Pub Italia for my birthday and drink eccentric beers. And uh, one year at one of those get-togethers, our friend TK gave me a DVD of Super Jail, and so I watched all of that DVD and then watched all of Super Jail. But it has been quite some time. So, um. They're like, I love that the warden has this kind of Willy Wonka aspect yeah. to him. There's one episode where there's a flashback to establish that, like, even when he was a kid, his dream was to have a super jail. Um, he's like, yeah, and there's going to be a robot that helps get the bad guys and everything. And his father's like, that's a silly idea. And but then he like makes it come true by the end. Um, I love that when they get the idea to franchise the super jail, it becomes such a global threat that the time police are sent back in time from the future <laughs> because he would, he would have turned the entire world into like this apocalyptic jail dystopia. Um, yeah. Just sort of like the big elements like that. I love how over the top, but also at times like thought out, super jail is he would have turned the planet into a human occupied landfill yeah yeah exactly um man hole has a real uh super jail vibe to it yeah fact. it really does um there's one more big source of inspiration that i used for this which is the movie fortress have you ever seen the movie fortress 
Uh, I don't think so. I think I'm familiar with it, but I don't think I've seen it. Um, it's a movie by Stuart Gordon. It stars Christopher Lambert, and it's set in a future where couples can only have one child, and Christopher Lambert gets caught trying to cross the border into Canada with a second unregistered child, and he is sent to space jail it's not in space but it's like future jail where the bars are laser beams and the warden is kurtwood smith uh yeah uh clarence boddicker from robocop ah of course and uh and the whole movie is him like you know he's a, he makes allies and they plan a prison break uh there is some really awesome like ridiculous moments if you've ever seen a Stuart gordon film stuff like from beyond or reanimator like there's a lot of gross out stuff like that like the first thing when you're processed to go into the prison in fortress they intubate you and they put like a tracker with an explosive device in your guts so if you're if you try to escape you just explode things like that it's it's really ridiculous but i it's a kind of a guilty pleasure of mine too extremely fun and and silly and gory so all these sources of inspiration uh boiled down to me identifying the tropes the the touchstones of how to tell a good story that's set in a prison because of course you know the first thing that the players are going to want to do is figure out how to get out of prison and what kinds of things do they encounter while they're in there so this session itself, um, it was a, a, like, in hindsight, it was kind of on rails, uh, but not in a way where I was actively railroading the characters. More in a way where it was like, actually, here's another good example of uh, something I took inspiration from that's not really quite the same as a jail movie but this session most of it is like the beginning of batman arkham asylum have you played batman arkham asylum yeah and it's funny actually so i definitely know what you mean about the intro where you're being brought in um what's funny about that is um i was also thinking about uh i think it's arkham knight when we were talking about carnival of killers i kept thinking of arkham knight yeah yeah i'm pretty sure arkham knight uses that plot line yeah that's right black mask is getting all the villains together um but yeah the beginning of arkham asylum like he's leading he's escorting the joker through arkham asylum and you know, you go sort of through all these different stations and you see all of these different areas that, of course, you're going to end up fighting your way through later in the game. And uh, it is this sort of this pri this prison processing sequence where you, you don't really have the option of doing anything, but you're still sort of active. Like you can move Batman around and like look around. And it's stuff. funny, you know. Earlier, uh, we mentioned Camp X, and in the time for that little technical difficulties, I ended up looking at a few videos because I was trying to find you uh, something on YouTube to show you of Camp X. But most of it is just like promotional, sort of like quasi historical like uh, stuff that's like mixed with clips from the show. But um, it's funny because one of those videos had a whole sort of like 
narrated tour of camp x as if you were coming there for the first ah, time interesting and so like i recently watched a video that has this exact thing where it's like on my left there's a building with a strange piece of high-tech machinery being brought out later i'll learn that this is project hydra which is used to decode uh, cryptography all over the world for world war ii uh, i head into the lecture hall which is a building i'll become very familiar with over the next couple of months that sort of thing yeah definitely that same idea where i'm 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 going to be sending the players and their characters into this prison they'll have to sort of experience all these different stations and go through processing and then Really, it's not until sort of the final third of this session where I finally cut them loose. They're put into the prison population. It's like, okay, now what, guys? So, I don't know. I don't advocate for railroading your players at all. But this was definitely a case where you just kind of have to go with it. Another good example is the beginning of Skyrim, right? You wake up, you're in the back of the wagon, you're a prisoner, and you have to sort of go through the motions of watching this execution before you finally are allowed to go out and do stuff. Or Morrowind, where you just get dropped off a prison boat, and they're like, you finally arrived, but our records don't say from where. Uh, yeah, uh, to a degree, but with more more preamble than that. Um so on the last adventure, they had taken part. I just want to say that this is uh, this whole thing. I, I had uh, originally been planning to bring to the tavern uh, some stuff about bunnies and burrows. But now I've had a brainstorm. I, I had an idea bulb flash. Uh, is uh, I got in the Vampire Requiem Chronicler's Guide, I got a whole example of a bottle chronicle that is set in a prison. Hey, perfect. A um, little, pre little preview of that says, uh, a bottle chronicle forces the characters into a confined area for the duration of the series where their instincts and conflicts have no means to vent, like a pressure cooker full of blood. Think of this as Oz with vampires. Nice, it's perfect. It's published in 2006 before they had better ideas. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I, you know, I've talked a lot about... Also, what it remind me of, Bloodshot Panopticon. Of course. Shout out. The prisoner. Ha! He was a prisoner. Why not? Um, and, you know, I've talked about a lot about the inspiration already, but, uh, another sort of motivation that I had here is this is, I've talked, I say it all the time on the podcast, but, like, take away your, your player character's toys, you know, strip them of their... They're really cool items and see how they fare for a little bit, especially once they've gotten up to higher levels and can fend for themselves better. And so this is like the ultimate version of that. Take away all their stuff and then uh, watch them fend for themselves. So on the last adventure, they had assisted in an attempt at stealing an old brown coat general's ship. Um, they had been hired to heist a ship from a scrapyard and uh as they were making their way away everything shut down and they were set upon by alliance troops and they were you know fully screwed they're stuck there was no way out and so this one begins with uh you know the alliance ship is docking with the phoenix and i i give the 
the players, I'm like, okay, like, you're about to be boarded. You have just mere moments to do anything before the Alliance is breathing right down your necks. Uh, what do you do? And uh, in my notes, I have it that I just, it, that if anyone tries to take more than two quick actions, the ship is boarded before they can do anything more. But I didn't tell my players, like, you got two actions. Haunch is just using it to throw up his hands and be like, oh, I'm, a, I'm a prisoner. They took me captive. I'm from a local school. I'd wait for the players to like say a couple of things and then cut them off, just interrupt and be like, it's too late. They're there. You know, the door is being pried open. I'm surprised, though, that uh, you're saying maybe can Haunch maybe slip away. Um, a lot of the players chucked their more valuable stuff, their weapons, you know, their more valuable gear, anything that they sort of hold dear into that hidden compartment where they found the body that had the centipedes in it. So they throw their valuables in there and... If only they still had the centipedes to guard and it. And seal it up. And I'm, I'm surprised you're not saying Haunch gets in there and seals himself inside so as not to be detected. No, no. Haunch, Haunch is from an Alliance Academy. He's probably got an ID on him. He's probably, you know, can pitch this as... Uh, it's he's, just he, research. It was all a misunderstanding. <laughs> and he's he was taken captive by these nasty pirates and rebels and... Uh, Thank God the Alliance is finally here to rescue him. So a, a squad that looks like a SWAT team. But then from the outside, he'll try to get his friends out. I like that. They they probably could have used Haunch in a situation like this. But uh, so a squad that looks like a SWAT team, they're wearing riot gear. They have like the big riot shields. They're carrying weapons. Uh, they barge in. They like laser cut their way into the cargo bay of the Phoenix. And they barge in and they... You know, they just start like taking people out, grabbing them, jostling them around. Anyone who resists is met with violence. You know, not afraid to like pummel the the player characters if they put up too much of a fight. Um, there's an idea that I cribbed from the movie Minority Report. Uh, it's just this really minor thing in Minority Report. Just a little bit of world building, but I like it. Is the cops in Minority Report have these things called six sticks? And uh, they're they're like those telescoping metal rods that police officers do actually have, except they deliver an electrical charge that that causes the victim to puke. And so yeah. the uh, the alliance officers have six sticks, and Daniel like gets up in one of the officers' faces, like, "What is the meaning of this? How dare you!" And then he's immediately zapped and just barfs all over the place. Um, the players are all rounded up into the cargo love bay. Love to take a little sci-fi trinket like that, like in um, uh, Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson. They got uh, they got basically like little, uh, glue guns. They'll hit you with a glue gun. They'll keep hitting you until you're just like solidified in place. Probably be very effective, honestly. Just like glue foam. Um, the players are rounded up into the cargo bay. Uh, Minerva is dismayed where she sees one of the grunts walk past and they're, he's towing her dog Allegro on a catch pole, one of those long poles with a, a oh, loop no. on the end, like pulling Allegro along. Um, they're handcuffed. Their hands are placed in these big magnetic manacles that cover their entire wrists. Uh, I have it noted down too that like when their arms are wrenched behind them, they have to do uh, save uh, like a strength-based saving throw uh, or suffer a dislocated shoulder, which gives them a pe oh, penalty no. until it's popped back into place. Uh, I mean, 
The haunch has just gone limp. <laughs> He's like, um, oh, fine, fine. I also, I also just want to say I wanted to give a shout out to um, one time in one of those bargain bins at EB Games, I got a used copy for like two dollars of uh, the Minority Report video game for the Xbox. Oh my god, <laughs> that game, that game's super funny. Uh, I I enjoyed it. But the funniest thing is that, like, I think I saw a review of it that the the subline was like, um, you know, so and so clears himself, approves himself innocent of murder by killing hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> it really is a game where, like, all the game, all the guns are sort of coded so that they're supposed to be non lethal. But then the most fun thing in that game, specifically because it's like giving you this narrative of like you know you're trying to prove yourself innocent of murder it's so funny to just use like a grapple attack and then throw a guy off a building <laughs> and just be like maybe that's what <laughs> they saw um i made sure to note down just for fun like strength check dc escape artist dc if anybody wants to try and get out of their manacles but of course uh they just can't dc is too high um and also uh if they tried to if any of the players tried to hide anything on their person uh they're frisked immediately and i ha i was rolling search checks contested by the hide checks that they rolled when they were hiding things and when they're all when the alliance is done all the players are left with are their clothes not even their coats just like shirt shoes pants socks underwear and uh, so, uh caesar has a pair of goggles that's like that was like a trademark part of her image and song has glasses and the alliance like seemed to take particular delight in taking away the goggles taking away the glasses just like taking away everything that means anything. they take gail's gun of course which was his father's gun he got into a fight about it in the very first session even and then they're marched single file onto the Alliance vessel that's docked with their ship and uh, into uh, just a bare room, uh, cramped square room with a graded floor and a big door slams shut and there's a magnetic lock thunks into place and they're just suddenly left alone in this tiny cramped room with a flickering yellow light above it. And they all are just like, you know, my God, what are we going to do? Daniel throws a bit of a tantrum and like kicks the door and then grabs his foot in pain and vents and vents and vents. And uh, suddenly they realize that there's another prisoner in there with them. And actually, you know what? One other source of inspiration that I didn't mention uh, that I know you love to have a good laugh at is Snowpiercer. I mean, what... Yeah, whether or not you agree with the logistics of Snowpiercer, it has a good sort of like prison prison movie vibe. Um, and so there's another prisoner in there and he's uh, like straight out of Snowpiercer. He's this Asian guy with long, greasy hair that sticks out in tufts and like an uneven beard that's crusted with grime. And he smells of like stale tobacco and, and urine and... Uh, they all sort of pay attention to him when he he suddenly just starts like chuckling like a maniac to himself. And uh, they're all trying to figure out. Oh, shit, it's Lopan. <laughs> not quite, not quite. Yeah, uh, the... everybody just jumps on top. <laughs> the fan casting for this one uh, is not actually Snowpiercer. It's uh, 
it is that famous image from the Korean version of Old Boy, right? Where uh, where he's he's alone in the room and his hair is overgrown, his beard is overgrown. He's got that crazy grin on his face. That's the image that I I threw on a screen for players to get a sense of who they were trapped in there with, and uh, they're trying to like get him to talk and figure out what to do. And I again cut off the players, interrupt them, and alarm sounds. The lights go down. And everybody's stomach lurches as the ship starts dropping down into the atmosphere. And I made them do another fortitude save to or risk losing their lunch. And then uh, pretty soon they are back on Pegasus, which is where their not so successful heist went awry. So there's the scrapyard on Pegasus, but Pegasus is also home to this giant prison. And they get... Uh, I take them like right through prison processing. This part was very inspired by the beginning of the Shawshank Redemption when Andy is led into the into Shawshank. So first they're brought into this room, this really bright room that's a big contrast to the the darkness they've been in. So all their eyes are like hurting, but they're still manacled together. They have to walk along a yellow line on the floor and then like line up and uh a guy comes out and he's not the warden. He's like the the head guard, uh, the Clancy Brown character from Shawshank. And I made it as well so that the players never get to see the warden of this prison. I, you know, the criminals here are too dangerous. The warden doesn't even get down to ground level. Um, so my fan casting for this guy is uh, good old Michael Ironside. Uh, this reminds me, uh, I can't remember. I feel like... In Oz, there's a distinction. There's the warden, and then there's the guy who is in in charge of MC, the 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 place like the experimental ward where Oz is set. But um, another recurring thing that you see in the comments on old Oz clips is there's a plot line where the original guy in charge of M city gets replaced for like a season, but then that guy is revealed to be bad and he is uh, outed. And then at the end of that plot line, they decide to give M city back to the guy who originally ran it. And all the comments are like, I can understand firing the new guy, but why in God's name would you give it back to the guy who had it in the first place? There was like a murder every other day under his watch. Um, I'm realizing here's yet another, uh, source of inspiration that I borrowed from is the movie Face Off, because Face Off has a hilarious, like, future jail. I don't know, do you remember the future jail at the beginning of Face Off? Oh, man, I, honestly, it's kind of, uh, blurred. I, I'm mainly just, I can't see past Nicolas Cage's insane, my face weird scarlet coat. No, I was thinking about him and his his insane like outfit. Oh yeah, with he's the, such a wacky like comic book with villain. the yellow or the golden pistols in the on the back of his belt, and he's got like a burgundy trench coat. Yeah, or something. and and, and like, different. He's got pince-nay. he's got a stash box with multiple sets of sunglasses. So he goes up to it and he opens his box and he like changes his shades <laughs> to match his outfit. Um, but no. Uh, after John Travolta is turned into Nicolas Cage in that movie, uh, he's taken to Erewhon Prison, which, of course, is nowhere spelt backwards. And in Erewhon Prison, every all the prisoners wear magnetic boots so that if a riot breaks out, 
The guards can flip a switch and everybody gets locked in place. Ridiculous. But uh, the beginning of his stint in Erewhon prison has this same sort of scene that I'm setting here where the head guard comes out and like tries to intimidate him saying like you're here so that the rest of the the universe can forget you exist. We, you know, we have no interest in your rehabilitation. You're no longer a part of any society except this one. You're going to labor in the mines, in the shipyards. There's a chance you'll live if you obey the rules, but no one has ever escaped. You can go ahead and try. Uh, the temperature outside can hit far below, you know, negative 20 degrees Celsius on any given day. The moon's atmosphere is thin, but not, you know, there's oxygen, but not enough to survive. One escape, he lasted 14 hours, but then he died being frozen to death, and that's the record. So yeah, go ahead, you can try. Uh, this is an Alliance military prison. None of the planetary laws behind which you may have hidden apply here. You have no rights. We're the new law, blah, blah, blah. Monologue, monologue, monologue. And uh, at this point... Um, the uh, the greasy creep who is the other prisoner there with them, uh, he reveals his ultimate narrative purpose, which is he just starts laughing and he chews out the head guard and he goes like, yeah, right, your mother, dude. And uh, the head guard just pulls out a gun and shoots him in the head right there. And he goes like, yeah, welcome ah, to prison, everybody. I love that Suicide Squad kill off character at the beginning. I love to. I think I've told the story of the time my friend ran a Suicide Squad game, and I uh, told him he should have like a Goblin Warlock character in the party at the beginning. But and people think that that's my character, but then actually he's the one that just gets his head blown. <laughs> um, and in this case, it it paid off really nicely because the players had engaged with him when they were all on the ship together. So like. I got a chance to sort of build him up as a bit of a character and then bam, just cut him off, uh, killed him immediately. And uh, so the the characters, you know, I, I always offer the opportunity to the players to do something. It's always like, okay, what do you do? How do, how do you react? I, was, I, I tried to give them a lot of prompts to role play because of course, there's not a lot they can do as they are being processed into a prison. Like, you act out, what, are you going to get shot in the head? So, like, how, how do you feel about it? What do you think about it? Do you react in any way? These are the kinds of role-playing prompts I was given, uh, giving them. So they, they take the, uh, they're taken into a big shower room for processing. There's a system of pipes and sprinklers overhead and ten yellow circles painted on the floor. And uh, this is uh, a moment where... I'm like, I'm also sort of, you know, taking these hot shots down a peg. All these characters have been really successful in daring heists. They're making a name for themselves. Well, you don't feel like such a hot shot when suddenly your character has to strip naked and then stand under a freezing cold shower and there's no privacy. So, you know, oh my God, everybody in the crew now sees each other naked and getting sprayed with freezing smelly water. And then, uh, after the torrent of freezing water ceases, one of the guards says, stay where you are, cover your noses and mouths. And then it's a, a decontamination solution. This like green, awful smelling liquid starts blasting out of the sprinklers onto them and just pouring all over them. And uh, so showers are shut off. 
Meanwhile, Haunch is in an interrogation room in an Alliance embassy, writing out a multi-page uh, statement about his capture. What happened to Haunch? The crew thinks that he's just been killed. Why isn't he here with us? Um, he sold us out. He was right there selling oh, us yeah, out. Oh, yeah, maybe. Oh, yeah. Is a traitor in our midst. Um, everybody is given uh, a bunch of, you know, some prison garb which is just like a gray jumpsuit with a big barcode on the back. And uh, then they're led into another room and a doctor comes in and goes like, you're about to receive an inoculation. It'll hurt any trouble. And you'll find there that there are things that hurt considerably more. And so he's got a pressurized injection pistol that he puts behind each character's right ear and with a crack of compressed air and you know there's a stinging pain in their skull and they've been inoculated and of course you know to, uh, whether or not they realize that a tracker has been injected into them as well and for that moment as a bit of fun interactivity before i told them what was happening i was like okay everybody take your pencil and then press the eraser behind your right ear and then i described the scene and so you know have that added sensation of that little sort of pressurized injection gun at the site where it would have gone in. They go through into another room and uh, guards assemble behind them uh, with two in front. And they're like, okay, we're going to lead you down convict row. You're going to be taunted by the inmates. You'll be intimidated. But if anyone says anything to the prisoners, they get 90 days in solitary confinement with only the darkness to keep you company now. Move. And they lead them down. This, this is the part that's a lot like uh, Arkham Asylum. Leading them past banks of cells. There are prisoners in there, you know, chanting about fresh fish, like in Shawshank. Fresh fish. Uh, many of the cells are crowded. And I would have... Uh... I would have definitely spoken out to get those 90 days solitary confinement because I want to see what wacky stuff happens when I break my brain in solitary uh, confinement. <laughs> uh, the, the players all kept quiet for this one. They're led down like, you know, a human zoo. They pass by a junction area and they notice there's a big freight elevator in this little uh, sort of intersection of hallways. Uh, there's a sign on the wall indicating where they're headed warden's block communications authorized personnel only airlock there's another long hall lined with cells and they're just greeted with more jeers as they walk down and as they're approaching the end of this hallway they notice in one of the other cells is the crew of the cantankerous they're old enemies who they left to be captured in the asteroid field so this is what happened to the crew of the Cantankerous and the crew of the Cantankerous, of course, sees them and are just like ready to tear them apart. They get shoved into, uh, they get, like, they sort of, they move past an empty cell. They, they're told this is their cell, but they don't go there immediately. Instead, they're brought into the warden's block and uh, they are... Like they're sat on these chairs, they get manacled with their hands behind their backs, and this is where the head guard appears once again with the doctor who inoculated them. And his sleeves are rolled up, and he's wearing a tool belt filled with shining bladed implements, and he's gonna torture them for information. Now, I've I know sometime in the past on this podcast I talked about torture, right? 
I know I've mentioned it. So the way I did this one, I think I mentioned it in the context of like, it's really awkward to narrate a torture scene. Well, specifically, it was uh, Minds of Metal and Wheels Part 2. That's right. Right? Or no, Part part 1, was it? Yeah, Part 1, because that's the one that had uh, Kane. Yeah. Um, and so for this, what I did is uh, there are, of course, rules for torture. Uh, they are in the Book of Vile Darkness. And I adapted those rules... And the idea behind it, rather than, like, describe every fingernail being pulled off by pliers or something like that, I had the players, uh, at the beginning of the, this adventure, before they even knew what was going to happen, I had them each write down a secret about their character. Like, a, an actual secret, something that none of the other characters know, and that is actual sort of information they would protect whether or not it was like a deep dark secret or just something they'd never tell about themselves i had them write it down in advance and the idea here is that the book of vile darkness the torture rules each torture implement that is used has a will save dc to roll against it and the the crazier the torture implement like a chainsaw has a really high dc you can't really it's difficult to resist spilling the beans when you're being tortured with something like that and so i basically treated this kind of like a skill challenge where you know the torture goes on for a long time and the head guard uh he basically do three different checks with each player three different implements of increasing difficulty and if the player's failed all three checks they gotta shout out their secret and like i know minerva broke and she revealed that she you know she used to be a brown coat agent but she was a spy she was like a double agent she was a spy in the alliance nobody knew that she had any connection to the alliance before so it was a big shock i don't know if they're torturing haunch over in the embassy because he's supposed to be an alliance citizen but uh, Haunch's big secret. So everybody got one secret. Because yeah. I didn't I didn't want to do secret. like the torture scene for too long is the thing. Gets awkward. Haunch's secret. Haunch's secret is that one night at an open mic on the Academy campus, he went to go do a comedy night, but he got drunk and ended up doing a comedy bit that was actually just entirely stolen from some other comedian, which he sort of like drunkenly accidentally did and realized after and he's been ashamed of it ever since <laughs> he bombed hard <laughs> i don't know if he even bombed he's just ashamed he's so terrified that someone would call him on the fact that his material yeah. was actually all stolen <laughs> like that um and it's funny because it's not even the sort of thing that he intentionally did he was just kind of drunk and wanted to get the laugh I was like, oh, I know these jokes. And then afterwards was like, wait, those weren't my Damn jokes. <laughs> and they're going to find out. Uh. Yeah, exactly. This is, like, this is what, if, if they torture Haunch, he like almost immediate. It's funny because he's a tough hero, but I think he would almost immediately break down and give this like useless story that the Alliance is like, yeah, okay, this kid is going to tell It's like anything. he's a, a tough hero. He's got a high constitution, but he has a low wisdom score or something. His will save stinks. His his fortitude's great, but he's not good at a will save. He's tough and, he's tough and charming, but... Uh, but not dedicated, uh, not wise. 
Um, he knows that the alliance is going to pull this out of him one day, one day or another. That that he stole that material for that open <laughs> mic night. Um, so everybody gets tortured. A couple of secrets are revealed, and when Daniel is tortured, uh, he sort of he gives the game away. He says, like, yeah, we were hired by these guys to transport, you know, this old alliance general and steal his ship. And he doesn't reveal that there's credits in the hull, but he's like, he he spills the beans on what they were up to. And finally, the head guard is like, all right, take them to their cell. I'm sure this won't be the last time that our paths cross and I take them away. Uh, they're staggered weakly back down convict row, but this time there are no like whoops or cat calls or anything. The cells are all empty because inmates are out maybe on work detail or in the mess hall or something like that. The guards throw them in their cell. Their cell has three sets of bunk beds and two crude metal toilets with the sinks on top with no privacy, of course. And, uh, you know, the bars slam shut. And finally, they're just sort of allowed to do stuff. Like, what do you guys do now? And they assess their situation. They're like, how the hell are we going to get out of this? They don't really know. After about another hour, there's a, a buzz of a door from down the hall. And then the cell block is flooded with prisoners who, you know, march in in two long lines. They reach their cells, stand in front. An order is barked by the guards. They all step inside and things settle down after the prisoners are back in their cell. You can just, they hear like the low murmur of conversation up and down the cell block. Um, the cell across from theirs is occupied by two inmates. There's like a squirrely dude with a buzz cut. And then his cellmate is uh, this guy who has a short mohawk with frosted pink tips. And then his face, he's got the, the Glasgow smile, the Joker scars on his cheeks. And they're both, you know, quite wiry and muscular, and they stare intently. And one of them goes like, hey, hey, guys, hey, yo, who are you? Hey, you got to talk to someone sooner or later, might as well be me. And uh, they introduce themselves. Their names are Teddy Bear and Cyrus. And uh, they're like, you know, we've been in the joint a few times. You, you step out of line, the guards are going to kill you. You guys need some friends here, and, you know, we can be your friends in exchange for a few favors. And uh, so they start talking with Teddy Bear and Cyrus and these guys just sort of like explain the ropes to them. They go like, OK, we're going to get some recreation time soon. Uh, you'll be eaten alive, alive out there if you don't know the ropes. So follow our lead. Stay close to us. And sure enough, you know, a little while later, a voice comes over the intercom. And it's like prison recreation time starts now. So they head out to the rec yards. Uh, you have two hours before mealtime. And uh, so they meet up uh, in person with Teddy and Cyrus and Teddy goes over and offers to shake hands and uh, uh, Gail steps forward and shakes his hand. until he's like, nah, first mistake. You never shake hands. You shake hands, you might get stabbed. And Teddy and Cyrus explain that there are two gangs, two main gangs that rule this penal facility, uh, except for the guards who are worse than any gang. There's a gang called the Bashers. And these guys are basically like the skinheads. There's always a skinhead gang in a prison system. So the bashers, they all have shaved heads. Uh, and they, you know, are just awful, terrible people. I didn't play up the neo-Nazi angle, but I sort of hinted at it. And then uh, the other gang is the Smiling Jacks, mostly made up of tongs. Uh, 
in here, they don't care what Tong family you were affiliated with on the outside. As long as you're a Tong, they'll have you, but you have to undergo the initiation, which is giving yourself the smiling scars. And uh, so they all pile into that big freight elevator they saw before. And uh, Teddy's like, you know, come to the back here. You want to keep your back against the wall again. Otherwise, you might get stabbed. And it became sort of a running joke where it's like, do what he says. Otherwise, you might get stabbed. Um, they head down into the rec yard. And the rec yard is this giant. It's not uh, an outdoor room. It's like a really big gymnasium. The ceiling is really high and made of transparent plexi steel so they can see the dark skies outside. And then a big sign on the wall says, when shooting starts, sit down immediately. So if anybody gets out of line, they're going to get shot. And when the shooting starts, anybody who doesn't sit down will get shot as well. And then, yeah, Teddy goes like, my usual spot is over there on the bleachers. Come see me if you need anything. Try to make some friends. It's almost as important as not making enemies. Uh, you won't be put on work detail for another two weeks because you're new here, but it's going to be hard. Lots of time to get harassed. Lots of time with nothing to do except sitting around thinking about what you did. Um, if you can get through that, well, you might just survive. And he walks away and the players are sort of left to their own devices and they look around. And sure enough, the crew of the Cantankerous are hanging out on the opposite side of the yard, glaring at them as well. And I'll, I'll wrap up this session there because I'm starting to go long with it. Uh, as I said, I, I think there was like four or five adventures where they were just stuck in prison trying to figure out what to do. And a lot of it was like character role playing. I'll talk about how they pass the time and who they affiliate with next time. But needless to say, the first thing on their mind is how do we get out of here? And so they start brainstorming ideas how they might be able to escape. Meanwhile, the Alliance has decided to sort of play soft with Haunch, but they've got him under observation. So they act like they're uh, re, you know, re rehabilitating him. They give him like a hotel room sort of thing. But the hotel room is like super locked down. He can't go anywhere. And he's totally under surveillance in the hotel room whether he knows it or not they're gonna watch to see if he tries to make contact with anyone or anything and so haunch he like does some basic inspection but he can't really tell if they're watching him or not but under the assumption that they are he decides to spend the first couple of days just sitting in that hotel room building model spaceships <laughs> damn he got off easy just a student I don't know nothing about pirates. Tavern time? Tavern time. I got one that we should jump right into because it's relevant. Okay, okay? let's do it. Uh, it's a bottle chronicle for vampire. We got a bit of narrative here in this one. They named their two uh, prison characters in the narrative, Poxy and Shinbone. So that's one little connection right there. Um, so, advantages. Uh, Ball Chronicle appears appeals strongly to players who value resource management, tactics, exploration, and a clear focus on victory conditions. Um, Chronicle may be for you if your available preparation time is front-loaded. After an initial preparation phase that may require a heavier-than-normal time investment, a Ball Chronicle becomes self-sustaining. 
Uh, players drive the agenda almost entirely. Once you've got it rolling, all you have to do is manage antagonist actions and reactions and occasionally shake up the closed system. I would say this is an advantage of Vampire overall. Like, you can do this on a sort of... Like, I think there's even in this book, uh, it describes the political terrarium system, which I like a lot hmm. for Vampire, where you just have like a, a closed system of a city and you know how the different players are interacting with each other at any given time where they are anyways drawbacks uh this chronicle type may not appeal to players seeking power fantasy highly developed storylines or fashionable adventures in elegant locales um, easily discouraged players may react poorly to the relentless pressure facing their characters um the Chronicle's emphasis on resources and tactics introduces the expectation that the game rules will be tightly adhered to. I don't know. Would you say that? Would I say... I'm not sure what... That that the rules are strictly adhered to in a bottle in a bottle type campaign, like or in a storyline, like it it says here. I agree with what it's saying about resource management, but it keeps mentioning tactics, and I'm not sure that I fully. I don't really understand. I, I don't what, know if that's a really universal. Yeah, I don't really thing. understand what they're getting at because, like, I don't the rules always apply. Yeah, but I think, like, I, honestly, I, what they're describing, like, the rules are tightly adhered to, that, and, and talking about tactics, it implies to me something more along the lines of, like, um, when you were describing Verdant Apocalypse and how every little thing... Oh, uh, yeah, like, for, the minutiae right? is Whereas more important, yeah. I, I think that what what you've just described is actually a bit more loosely narrative. Like the, the torture thing was not like exactly by the book. It was just like your take on it to get the point across, right? Yes. I think that it's kind of underplaying the narrative direction element of it in favor of this idea that, well, there's going to be people they are at odds with in this system, and that will just sort of like carry on from here. I think they're pitching a bit of a, a fallacy, hmm. basically. Um, yeah, because it says storytellers who tend to fudge or hand wave their way through rules issues will need to review books and be prepared to rule in a consistent, predictable manner. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe there's some experience they had when testing this that like led them to come to that conclusion, but I'm not sure. Um, so, but we've got some interesting things here. We've got starting questions. So I think we can answer most of these pretty easily for, uh, the versus little prison escapade. Uh, why are the protagonists trapped? Wow. They tried to steal a ship. by the Alliance. Uh, where are they trapped? On Pegasus in the perdition penal Pegasus. colony. If they are prisoners, they are. Who are their captors? The Alliance. Alliance. Do they know who their captors are? Yes. Yes, but like not uh, personally. That's the thing. It's like the, that's, the that's Alliance true. has captured them, but they don't know these specific Alliance agents. Uh, what prevents their escape? You mentioned the uh, inability to get out on the... Yeah, you, you can't, you know, with the freezing you can't the survive oxygen. in the elements without necessary gear. Uh, what are the environment's primary resources? 
this is actually something interesting because it did stand out to me that that one guy said he'd be at the bleachers you can come see him if you need him for anything or something it's like it makes me wonder like is this the sort of thing where it's like a typical prison where they trade in cigarettes as currency um you know i once uh heard that before that uh before cigarettes became the big thing you know what the real currency was in prison was it pornography no that's a good guess um it's a currency that it was currency outside of prison as well let's say oh interesting because uh, it was so valuable on a cultural level oh oh is it one of those things like salt is it one of those things like that sort of uh it was coffee oh coffee okay yeah that makes sense a- everybody fucking needed coffee and it wasn't you know it was all about who would have coffee um it's funny because i think it was a movie i saw that where somebody mentioned that and the guy's asking like what do you think it was before cigarettes and the person guesses sex and the other guy says "Ah." (laughs) oh it's coffee um but yeah so what are like the sort of resource like do they have any resources that they can uh get or depend on in the prison is that going to come up later? it is going to come up later and i'll i'll tell you like a couple of things i got a review i'll tell you one thing that jumped out at me was you mentioned the necessary equipment to survive yeah. outside so there is the scrapyard that they stole the ship from inmates can choose to work in the scrapyard as part of their their like work detail their labor labor detail so theoretically if they can find a way around like the metal detectors and security systems and stuff they can steal tools they have access to uh broken down ships they they might even be able to get access to the phoenix itself uh depending on how they work it um in order to feed the prisoners there is also uh, a greenhouse and like indoor gardens uh, that they can work in. Something that will uh, happen in future adventures is Song builds himself a still to make vodka out of the potatoes he's growing. And he starts growing potatoes under the bunk bed in his cell. So there- I just had another memory is uh, the Walking Dead video game season two when you are in the weird like uh compound that the bad survivors have made and uh who's i think the leader's voiced by michael madsen or something and uh at one point there's a greenhouse in there and at one point uh you gotta uh you know work on some plants or something kamel nanjani is uh the voice of the guy who's trying to teach you and if you do bad he gets punished because you were huh. his responsibility. It's a good dynamic. Good good uh, role-playing situation to put people in. More questions? Uh, okay, well, we got uh, who are the character's primary competitors? So right now we've got the cantankerous. Yeah, they, That's their right on its yeah, face. Yeah, exactly. They're the main ones. Uh, does the environment itself pose additional dangers to the protagonist? Absolutely, they're surrounded um, by danger. We know about the, we know about the outer danger. Is there danger to them within the prison, or are they? The, is the life support 
fairly The life reliable. support is reliable, but of course the other gangs in the prison are potential dangers and outside the prison uh the like the outer walls have automated machine gun turrets i guess i kind of borrowed that idea from like doomsday right the movie doomsday where there's the big wall quarantining scotland it has automatic automated machine gun turrets that aren't manned by anybody uh same idea here that's also similar to riccio riccio has the zero alarm sound the zero alarm and machine guns pop out <laughs> and shoot everybody and finally does the environment offer uncontrolled territory for the competitors to explore and expand into? It's funny because this is like, I sort of see that they are using this section to talk about more than just like prison, but like bottle campaign as in like, maybe they're stranded on right. an island or something. Um, but what's funny about this is that um, even Oz had unexplored territory that people could expand into in all those unlocked maintenance rooms where all the crimes happened. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I'll have to go over my notes for the future, future sessions. There aren't a lot of areas to expand into, but things like the cells, I had it just to sort of make it easy on the players in one way. The cells don't get searched very often. So, that's an area that they can sort of make their own. As I said, Song starts growing potatoes uh, under his bunk. Um, so there's that. And then they are afforded opportunities, like if they work in the shipyards, like they could expand, you know, they, they could take over a ship when no one's looking and start fixing it up. So to a degree, I guess. So, um... Then we've got uh, some different ideas. So basically it covers the different types of bottle chronicles that it has in mind. So there's kindred in prison. So vampires in prison. One thing it suggests is if the prison is run by vampires for vampires, maybe there are humans mixed in as food. Um, and one of the ideas is maybe the humans that are mixed in are all people who basically learn too much who somehow got exposed to the secret existence of vampires and were sent to this prison to make them uh, get out of there. Um, and the idea that maybe the protagonist battle with rival gangs to control the greatest possible number of mortal inmates. Um, then alternatively, we've got castaways, which is something I was talking about there. Um, one thing I like that's, uh, let's see here. So we've got like um, jet crash or shipwreck, remote island, forgotten plateau, or other inaccessible locale. Um, uh, maybe they've been castaways for a while, long enough for the single vampire in the group to make a number of new vampires, only to see them split off into rival tribes. Um or there could be a bunch of vampires that are all on this place from the beginning. Uh, disaster could have been an accident or an act of sabotage aimed at gathering a pack of vampires and letting them loose in a contained environment. Uh, environments vampires maintain herds uh, consisting of either mortal castaways or tribesmen native to the area. Um, Kindred struggle to enlarge their herds by capturing wild humans and by raiding rival encampments. 
Uh, the entire map of the area may be known to the protagonist as play begins. Uh, the area may include a vast no man's land or a thin border between the territories. There could be large unexplored regions that the characters can scour for new resources. Um, and of course, there's all sorts of dangerous hazards and whatnot. Uh, but one idea I like that it like it poses this here as like a potential like watch out for this, where basically it's like it's hard to introduce new characters to that setting. Um, and it says like, you know, one one plane crash, you know, that could happen. But if you start to have new visitors all the time, then it turns into Gilligan's Island. But I like that idea, actually. What if you did this, but then there's constantly new people showing I mean, that's up? The, that's I like the premise that idea. of the TV show Lost, right? The I don't know. Did you ever watch Lost? Not not a lot of it. I've I've watched, man. I've watched a bunch of it. But, but like they crash on know. this all kind of a remote island, mind. and one of the big early revelations is like, oh my god, we're not alone on the island. There are other people here. And then later they find out that uh, another plane crashed on the island like years prior, and the survivors of that have become sort of their own survivalist tribe. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. It worked for Lost. Could could work for an adventure. And in, in the case of a mega prison like the one in the verse, it's easy to introduce new characters. The prison population is so big. Yeah. Like, you just, just meet this a new guy. This is just talking about like that castaway mm -hmm. take. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just... Uh, I'm not... I, I, I feel like I lost the idea that I was kind of drawn to there as you well. like the it's idea like that the planes keep crashing up, but then well i like the idea that just like new people just keep showing up inexplicably like um but also it says here like uh if you're in the middle of a castaway chronicle and want to keep it going by periodically introducing new characters to the mix you can always reveal that an unseen hand arranged for the original disaster is keeping the islander plateau stocked with fresh guinea pigs as in the premise that follows, which is rats in a maze. Here, the protagonists and their competitors have been captured by powerful beings and placed in an unconventional prison-like environment. This is one of my old faves. Uh, it's an old, I think it was a, an X-Men plot line. They get set to the battle dimension. It was just like a great like Marvel Mojo world. Uh, comic series where everybody gets sent to battle zone and has to fight. It's just like Fortnite. It's just Fortnite. <laughs> it's great. Um... It's got ideas here like uh, characters are the unwilling stars of a cruel underground reality show. Its producers have presumably created technology allowing them to capture kindred on videotape or some other recording medium because otherwise oh, they get it's all like the game up. Manhunt. Yeah. Uh, weird prison might be an elaborate physical installation or of supernatural origin. Uh, could be a pocket or dimension. Or like a weird Dutch village. Could be a pocket dimension just like... Uh, battle zone i was talking about there uh woven into existence by mortal mages um a vivid virtual reality networked in the minds of torpid vampires that's like the remake of the prisoner um uh question of whether or not they were able to escape the prison uh by discovering the nature of their confinement um it actual it, it mentions the cube or the movie Cube, 
Classic. Uh, doesn't need to look like a prison at all. It could easily take the form of an alien outdoor environment. This reminds me of a movie I saw at Fantasia called The Human Race. You ever hear of this? No, but I'm willing to bet that the word race is a pun. Yeah, well, um, the real thing was that it was starring this guy who was like an Afghanistan veteran who I think had lost both his legs. I met this guy. I had I had a meal with him. I, I was at a meal with him at some point <laughs> after the film. Um, very, uh, you know, I think he was like very kind of, hey, what's going on, man? Like pretty, uh, pretty good dude, but like no legs. And like, I think part of the film was basically him showing that he could be as agile and physically fit as any fully able human. Um, but basically he is one of many random humans who get randomly uh, displaced into this weird racetrack that like runs through sort of like an abandoned European town or something. Um, and then at the end, it turns out it was aliens. Uh, more it turns out the aliens, aliens and, uh, um, yeah, I, that was, it's funny. A lot of people dislike that part of the movie. That was my, my favorite part when it suggested that once they got out of the race, they were going to go on the alien planet. It sounds a lot too, like, uh, under the dome, under the dome is kind of, kind of a bottle adventure, isn't it? Also, yeah. Spoilers um, put there by aliens. <laughs> We got uh, additional twists. Um, you could begin a bottle chronicle in what seems to be a conventional prison or isolated locale, only to later allow your players to discover that they're really in a virtual or supernatural environment. Uh, don't need to pit vampire against vampire. Competitors for resources could be werewolves, mages, or numerically superior force of humans. Um, can occur in the natural a prison chronicle can occur in the natural environment of an island plateau or in expansive veldt or jungle sealed off as a prison camp in the case of an alternate setting with mortal captors an encampment of this sort might be a sort of nature preserve containing the last few vampires to survive a worldwide pogrom or maybe i'm running bloodshot panopticon and a new guy shows up and he tells the vampires that there are no vampires left outside oh. it's like is this guy just crazy or what that's interesting man well the idea i'd always wanted to play with with bloodshot panopticon was um the idea that the the prison is by its nature like a relic of the soviet era and the con the prison is still going and nobody knows that like the Soviet Union has collapsed and it's like 2020 or something. See, I'm kicking myself because that is totally the kind of cool twist that you can pull in uh, an adventure or campaign where your players are trapped in a prison. I never once hinted that something it, something big had happened outside the walls of the prison, but I really should have. I like that. The man, the the brown coats have actually risen up and the alliance is suddenly on the losing side and they don't realize that like they like they're so terrified of this faceless alliance force that's containing them. They don't realize that the alliance is actually like barely holding it together. Yeah, this is like could, most of what's left of the like, alliance um, is just holding them in this prison. It could be just like uh, in Preacher when Eugene is in hell and you slowly get this sense that like everything is slowly breaking down. Yeah. Yeah, missed opportunity there. I, I didn't go in that direction. 
Um, so then we've got things uh, like prison maps for a prison game. Map out a complete environment before play begins. Did you do this? Map out the full environment? Yeah, the, not the, the prison. Not the entire prison. Key parts of the prison, but not the whole thing. Um, if you start the Chronicle with all of the players' ca characters as new inmates, you may... Oh, there's a typo here. You may can reveal <laughs> your map at a section at a time as they orient themselves in the facility. Uh, for obvious reasons, complete floor plans of modern prison facilities aren't readily available. Uh, so it can be slightly fanciful. Uh, maps of historical prisons can be found online. Um, uh Unlike other Bottle Chronicles, the characters here lack full freedom of movement through their environment. This is sort of what you were talking about with the on-rails thing. Um, decide which areas the prisoners are allowed in at which times and un under which restrictions. The battle for resources occurs mostly in common areas, with the occasional excursion into restricted areas allowed by bought-off guards. Um, Include some of the following basic areas. Cell blocks, including special blocks for solitary and protective custody. Common areas, exercise rooms, prison yards, safe only at night, of course. Ha, vampires. <laughs> um, visiting areas may be largely disused depending on the regime of the running the prison. I love to do a scene where Haunch comes and sees them in visiting and it reveals that he's helping to break them out. Uh, offices, lockers, staff and equipment rooms for prison personnel, chapel, library, cafeteria, uh, hospital facilities, assembly room. This just reminds me, I can't believe I haven't mentioned this yet because it's so relevant. We talked about JoJo's Bizarre Adventure before. Oh, yeah. The most recent season, they finally got... This is actually kind of amazing to me because there's been so much of the... There's been so much more of the JoJo's manga than the cartoon for so long now at the fact that they are getting to like the far reaches of the comic, or at least in my, uh, in my experience, what seemed to be like really far along in the cartoon. Um, and the one they are doing now stone ocean actually has a very fascinating first half where it is about one of the Jojo descents. It's about the first female Jojo, uh, Jolene Cujo, I believe. <laughs> Um, but she, uh, gets put in this prison. It's all an evil plot by this evil guy. The villain is the chaplain of the prison who acts like he's actually there for them. But in reality, he is launching this long-term vengeance plot on behalf of Dio against the Jojo, uh, lineage. Um, but it's all set in this prison that they call Stone Ocean, um, that is set like off the coast of Florida. And it's a really fascinating, like I, it's one of my most, it's one of the Jojo stories that interests me the most um, because it has so many unique elements. Like there's the female Jojo there is, it's set in a prison, but it also has this very kind of like, you know, it reminds me of bad Lieutenant port of call new Orleans or that, like that general, like, circa hurricane katrina florida kind of setting um which i find fascinating from the perspective of iraqi as a manga artist because his insight on that is also informed by like uh the 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 typhoon and like fukushima and everything right like there is this shared history between 
Florida and Japan of this recent catastrophic uh natural disaster which like uh in in very similar terms of how it affected the community um and yeah like seeing basically seeing like port of call new orleans almost done mixed with like ricky o basically is what it's like god damn i'd i'd watch that um one of the characters is uh weather report see this is the real thing is that you at least have to watch some of season three i think to understand the whole stands thing um because at this point in the series jojo's has moved away from hamon the like kung fu thing and instead everybody's got stands which are like spirits that you summon up and have unique powers and are all named after musical artists um and they do things like 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 they're basically like pokemon like i've always said that iraqi if he could settle down enough to just have the stands be a mix of an animal and an element he would have invented pokemon but instead <laughs> he has a bunch of insane like bodybuilder dudes in wacky fashion who summon up like guardian spirits who look like like die cast bodybuilder surrealist paintings and they have names like another one bites the dust or something <laughs> and their abilities are like they freeze time or they fucking can attack through any source of light so they use reflections to fight people like <laughs> so so like weather report in stone ocean his thing is he can control the weather but he uses it to do like the whole like um make it rain frogs thing or make it rain snails like he can make it so at one point he makes it rain uh poison frogs over the prison so all the prison guards if they get touched by one of the frogs they die jeez i gotta watch this <laughs> it's fun. it's funny because like i'm lo- i'm a lot less interested in like uh season five and season four but then uh stone ocean for some reason like really this whole uh, yeah, it's that whole mix-up of, like, Jolene, the prison, the chaplain who has, like, this insane, like, mission from God. Um, yeah, it's great. Um, so, yeah. Uh, also, I included for the show notes a little screenshot of a map that they include as an example, which is a little uh, prison. We've got my cell block, cell block C, cell block D, the showers. I have no idea what this room is. I cannot see inside and it is guarded. Uh, it says at the bottom, this is the only map I was able to render in my short stay. I hope never to visit again. <laughs> uh, it's great. It's great stuff. Good flavor. Yeah, there's a lot of good flavor. Um, we've got uh, more about castaway maps. Uh, maps become even more important in Chronicles in which the bottle characters enjoy relative freedom of movement. Um, uh, caves are a must if you've got vampires they need to survive the days uh, naturally these are coveted and uh, fiercely fought for a uh, variety of elevations will add tactical, tactical interest to turf battles I feel like this is what they were talking about when they were talking about like yeah tactics and and adherence to the rules i think they're talking more about this idea of like a lord of the flies like Fortnite type uh vampire situation which given like i think battle royale was like 2001 so they probably are like quietly referencing battle royale without paying homage here mm-hmm. that makes sense um uh 
even a change uh unconventional environments even a changing environment of supernatural origin should be mapped in detail and shown to the players so they can plot out their raids and exploratory activities as bizarre and shifting as an environment of supernatural origin might be should also feel like a suitably gritty and concrete backdrop to a desperate struggle for survival you know what this really reminds me of is what you talked about earlier is uh arkham asylum yeah arkham asylum like when they go to Arkham City, it doesn't feel like that much of a stretch because Arkham Asylum already feels like this entire, like, it feels like the Battle Royale island. Like, there are so many different sections. It is so um, enormous as to be ridiculous. And there's so much flavor. Yeah. Um, then we've got uh, how many gangs? I was a bit surprised that you only had two gangs in yours. It does say here a straight up match between two competing groups provides the nastiest shortest and most brutal of the possible chronicles uh but i i was actually thinking like you know you mentioned ricky has four gangs i thought this was going to be more of a saint throw thing where there were all sorts of what i thought you were and also the fact that the gangs are kind of down to earth when you went for it i thought we were going to get like a a cyborg gang. I thought we were going to get, uh, you know, I don't know, a, a gang of, uh, psychics or something, or like there's one psychic and all their thralls or something. Uh, you know, I, I would have had all sorts of crazy sci-fi gangs. Cause then it's fun to see if one of the players, if the players decide, maybe they're going to try and take over one of the gangs. Right. Um, no, it was it was actually just for simplicity's sake. I didn't want to have too many things that I had to keep track of. Uh, and as I mentioned too, the the guards themselves are kind of I treated them the same as the gangs. So there's really there's kind of like three gangs in this place. It should also be said that like you're clearly doing like an arc of a larger campaign, whereas it says here like uh four or more rival groups works best if you want a slower more deliberate yeah. struggle that leaves time for character development this choice can also work if the competition is being manipulated by shadowy overlords they can introduce sudden opportunities and other changes to the environment favoring sudden bold action um in the bit of fiction at the beginning it actually describes um basically like a supply drop gets dropped in view of uh the characters but then they see that the other group has also seen it and is coming um it's a good one that's very black summer yeah yeah very very season two um we've got some specific uh are there sidelines uh relative strength resources we've got some vampire specific things like uh the amount of blood there is to go around how available it is um hunting ranching and raiding blood behind bars care packages uh jailers um certain concepts call for the creation of characters who maintain the environment but do not compete with the protagonist for resources for want of a catch-all term we'll call them jailers um there was also right uh near the end they've also got um events and some sample events so the appearance of cooler of stored blood in a visible but inaccessible locale. Ooh, that's doesn't good. have to be blood, but any resource. Um, a deadly fight breaks out within one's uh, vessel, so your food supply, which must be broken up before too much precious blood is spilled. Um, a strange creature is sighted in the far distance. Smoke monster. 
the arrival of a new alpha prisoner, a violent storm lashes the environment, an earthquake shakes the prison, blight strikes the food stores your vessels depend on, uh, night or that you depend on, uh, nights grow unnaturally shorter for vampires. Mm. Uh, the group's most reliably bribed guard is transferred to another unit. A vessel escapes. Fire breaks out. Hidden documents are found revealing a possible way out. Um, enemy, but it says also enemy actions should never occur randomly. Uh, it's also got a system here for resource morale where uh, depending on what your resources are like, you get a desperate or confident uh, bonus to your uh, willpower rules. Yeah, all sorts of stuff. Cool. Lots of cool ideas. I like it. Yeah, there's some great ideas in there. So we've gone a bit long, so I'm going to save my tavern pick for next time but there is talk about the worst rpg ever yeah the next episode the worst rpg ever next episode but there is something that i came across last night that i do want to share it's just a resource that is really handy and uh i came across it because i was looking for material for the campaign i'm running and i mentioned i've mentioned in the past that i ran a module called the dance of the sun and the moon and I had incorrectly attributed it to being a Adventurer's League module, but it is not. In fact, uh, the reason I was confused is because it was a module that belonged to the, the fourth edition equivalent of Adventurer's League, which was oh. Living Forgotten Realms. Um, same sort of idea, you know... Uh, uh, adventures meant to be played at conventions, officially sanctioned stuff by Wizards of the Coast, uh, this flagship D&D campaign for 4th edition, uh, Living Forgotten Realms. And uh, whether or not you play 4th edition, this is a great resource full of awesome adventures that you can easily adapt to your own campaigns. And I discovered that all of Living Forgotten Realms has been preserved online at livingforgottenrealms.com where they have every adventure in the entire thing uh, i couldn't even put a number on it but there are a lot of these that you can just you can just download them they're all there. one adventure it's one advantage it has over uh, the adventures league because all that stuff is still paywalled yeah well i guess because this is defunct uh they're just sort of giving it away but uh so I, I mentioned as well the Dance of the Sun and the Moon. Uh, you can find that on here, and it's pretty cool. And uh, the big, sort of one of the big things that happens at the end of the Dance of the Sun of, of the Sun and the Moon is there's an eclipse, and the eclipse heralds the arrival of the floating tower of Zifu, the Aboleth city, the home of the Aboleth sovereignty. Uh, which is this floating tower surrounded by like squid-like creatures flying around it. And uh, I wanted to read the next adventure in the series to get some ideas of what to do next in my campaign. And so the next one in the series is called The Writhing Obelisk, where the players actually go into Zifu, the floating tower, and try to free the prisoners. I guess it's... Sounds like an easy tie-in to Writhing in the Dark, the Mind Flayer one. Didn't you do that one? I did do the, uh, the Mind Flayer one, yeah. Um, 
And this is as I, this is actually quite appropriate. Maybe that mind flare was like a spy of this sovereignty. I like that idea. But yeah, the sovereignty oh, are taking good. prisoners and transforming them into Kuotoa. So ah, so classic Lovecraft. Yeah, so that's the the writhing obelisk blah, blah, adventure. Blah blah blah. That is on livingforgottenrealms.com. So yeah, I encourage people if you're looking for just cool resources, neat ideas for adventures. Uh, they are all there, and there are so, so many of them. Yeah, uh, Living Forgotten Realms, hundreds of adventures supporting the entirety of 4th edition play from 1st to 30th level. This website serves as an archive of the campaign in general and most of its adventures in particular. I do like that uh, 30 levels divides into 3 a little better. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I'm into. But you know, it seems like that was a good full episode right there. I should say so. From oh, behind enemy lines, killing some diplomats, to prison time all the way through. This has been, well now, actually we started to record this on the 18th, but now it's been episode uh, 93, I think. We're on the 20th, but you're giving away our secrets, man. Well, yeah, right. It's episode 93, but now it's the 20th. So, well, the thing is, they were going to hear at the start of the episode that I say that this was recorded on the 18th. Now I'm looking at the date. It's the 20th. You could have lied. Uh, they never know. But would have had to think faster. Fudge it. Easier You're for a DM. me to just talk it through. Uh, not me. I am a DM, but. Not that's not for me to do. Uh, if you want to follow us and see when we post new episodes, check us out on Facebook, comparing campaign on Facebook. And if you want to see our supplemental notes, see pictures of things that we said, or uh, you know, links, show notes. It's what they're called usually. It's uh, comparing campaign dot wordpress dot com. That's all for me. Don't steal, cause it's haunted. Level up your characters. Thank you.